I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. You can act like a man! Right, lads, time to man up. Yeah. Come on. Take your boys to a little corner and teach them how to cry all I don't day. Think that's what What is masculinity? Hello, and welcome to the Anti-Mask Podcast, where we make compassionate critiques of masculinity in the 21st century. My name's Stefan Harvey, and today I'm joined with my very good friend, Alistair Ingalls. How are you doing, Alistair? Yeah, not bad. Um, thanks for thanks for having me on. It feels good, so I'm ready. I'm ready for this. Nice one. Um... I'm having a plate of birthday cake because it was my birthday yesterday. Happy birthday. Thank you. I'm uh, joined the 27 Club, but I'm not famous yet, so hopefully I won't die. Um, Let's uh, get to the meaty bit of the Anti-Mask podcast, where we do carry out compassionate critiques of masculinity. And on that note, uh, we're going to begin our first episode by talking about a very heavy, very philosophical, but also pretty mind-blowing article um, that came out in the London Review of Books back in March 2018, so quite a while ago now. Um, and before I say anything about it, I'm just going to tell you the title because I think it's a exciting enough title in itself. Um, the writer is Amir Srinivasan, um, an absolutely great thinker and philosopher. And the title of the article is, Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex? Um, So there's so much going on in this article. Alistair, do you want to take us through briefly what it it kind of is about and what we're going to talk about from it? Yeah, um, I would say that this is the first article I've ever read in the London Review books. Yeah, it's also my first and still my only yeah, it's not. A, I wouldn't say it's like a friendly publication. It's it's about as high. It's the, probably the most highbrow publication you can buy in in W. H. Smith's in a train station. If you, if they even stock it, to be honest, you know. Yeah, I mean, you're not going to get that in like Huddersfield Smiths, but you might <laughs> do in like Leeds Station. Aye. A bit more cosmopolitan there. Yeah, yeah. It was it like it, it took me a couple of times. To it took me a long time to read it the first time, and then I definitely benefited from reading it the second time because I could I, the the nuances were able to like distill a wee bit more. So, what's it about? Uh, what Srinivasan wants you to do is think a wee bit about why you desire certain body types or certain. Traits like ethnicities or I would you say that's fair? Yeah, certain ethnicities, um, someone's body type, like you say, maybe whether they've got a certain disability, um, gender plays into it. That's something we'll talk about a lot later on. Um, but that's that's the ultimate thing that Amir's trying to get you to think about. But it starts off with quite a heavy topic that at face value seems a bit isolated um but as she goes on um connects this event uh, very well with the wider theme in the article 
Um, and I just want to say before we go into reading an excerpt that's the first paragraph from the article that the reason I've chosen to talk about this um, article is that it had a really big impact on me personally and made me question a lot of things that I'd thought about already in my own life but hadn't really taken the initiative or overcome fears to act upon and ultimately it might have been this article that inspired me to explore my sexuality in a way that I maybe should have earlier and eventually come to the comfortable conclusion that I'm some kind of queer, definitely not totally straight. Um, so, Alistair, mm. do you want to read the first paragraph and mm. introduce us to what it's all about? Yeah, definitely. Um, I would say that after reading the article, I didn't feel the need to or the urge to to become queer so it's not like a it's not requirement it's not a requirement but it is it you know it did make me think about it a wee bit you know so yeah how does it start right so Srinivasan she opens with this on 23rd of May 2014 Elliot Roger a 22 year old college dropout became the world's most famous incel involuntary celibate. The term can in theory be applied to both men and women, but in practice it picks out not sexless men in general, but a kind of sexless man, the man who is convinced he is owed sex and is enraged by the women who deprive him of it. Roger stabbed to death his two housemates, Weihan Wang and Cheng Hong, and a friend, George Chen, as they entered his apartment on Civil Row in Isla Vista, California. Three hours later, he drove to the Alpha Phi sorority house near the campus of UC Santa Barbara. He shot three women on the lawn, killing two of them, Catherine Cooper and Veronica Weiss. Roger then went on a drive-by shooting spree through Isla Vista, killing Christopher Michaels Martinez, also a student at UCSB, with a single bullet to the chest inside a deli mart and wounding 14 others. He eventually crashed his BMW coupe at an intersection. He was found dead by the police having shot himself in the head. So this article made you queer, Steph? <laughs> uh, not this bit. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get on to that. We'll get on to that. I, I, don't, I don't get off to, um, to gender-based terrorism. That's, that's not what this is about. Um, that's good. As, as we'll find out later. But um, so what... what what do you think about that, having read it off the top? What do you think it says about pressures on men and the kind of logical extremes that toxic masculinity could go to? Yeah, I've known about incels for a few years. I can't. I don't remember this specific incident happening, but I, and I can't remember when I became aware of incels, but the do kind of terrify me that they can hold such an extreme point of view mm. about something that seems to me just so taken as red as you know the right to to have sex with well not have sex with who you want but I mean, not have sex with someone you don't want to, if that makes sense. You know, it's like you no, are not. You... Yeah, like 
you are not owed sex by anyone, right? Sure. And but that is just completely not their standpoint. I find it so baffling. I find it so, and they believe it so hard that you know they can be driven to to like mass murders, right? Yeah, I think. I do think though that like maybe we should be a bit more self-reflexive because maybe even if we haven't like articulated something like this in the past, um, if ever, there is a wider point that some kind of extreme horrific violent murderous act like this is the extreme of an entire spectrum of the way men are conditioned to think about sex and what they are and aren't entitled to if you see what I'm getting at, in the sense that, like, say, for example, I bet you've used the phrase friend-zoned before. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people in recent years, I've noticed, like, call out friend-zoned as a problematic term because it, it is actually, like, a more subtle, scaled-down version of a similar attitude that it's like, oh, I'm friend-zoned, the implication being that any relationship with a woman ideally should result in a sexual relationship. Right. Yeah. So, you know, hopefully not everyone who's going around using the phrase friend zone every day is going to go on a murderous rampage and also write a huge manifesto about why it's classed as retribution, which I'll get onto in a minute. But if you're going to be more like self-reflexive of the kind of language you and people are using every day, you can see how it's kind of a horrific extreme of a bigger picture. Yeah. Yeah. He is, he's the, he's the, the, what's that phrase? The sharp end of the stick. Is that right? This, the, maybe the, I don't know. I'd just say the extreme of a spectrum. Well, yeah. All right. The, he's the he's the extreme of the spectrum. He's he's the he's one of the ends of the stick. Um. So that's looking at a bigger picture thing, but let's explore a bit more about racial hierarchies and all kinds of hierarchies that might have affected Elliot Rogers' own like self perception and what drove him to do this. Uh, I'm just going to read the second paragraph to give a bit more of an insight into what happened on that day and what people and what he thought. So, in the hours between murdering three men in his apartment and driving to Alpha Phi, Roger went to Starbucks, ordered coffee, and uploaded a video called Elliot Rogers Retribution to his YouTube channel. He also emailed a 107,000 word memoir manifesto called My Twisted World, the story of Elliot Roger, to a group of people including his parents, his therapist, former school teachers, and childhood friends. Together, these two documents detail the massacre to come and Roger's motivation. Open quotes. All I ever wanted was to fit in and live a happy life, he explains at the beginning of My Twisted World. But I was cast out and rejected, forced to endure an existence of loneliness and insignificance, all because the females of the human species were incapable of seeing the value in me. So I think that last bit's really interesting, that it's all based on self-worth. And there's clearly like an innate hatred of himself, but also he's got delusions of grandeur at the same time. Would you agree with that? Yeah. I think it's it's weird. In one hand, there's self-loathing there, but on the other hand, 
you need to feel some kind of self-respect is maybe not the right word, but you need to have some kind of, you need to hold yourself in some regard in order to think you're entitled to something, right? Which he clearly does. Sure. I find the last bit so fucked, man. All females of the human species were incapable of seeing the value in me. This is nonsense. Yeah. It's just nonsense. Yeah. He, he wants, what he wants is a specific type of woman. He wants the sorority girls. To like him. Yeah. Because, look, I looked at some pictures of him. I looked him up. He's not, he's not an ugly guy. He's not, he's not unattractive. Mm -hmm. um, he's, you know, he's got good bone structure. Nice face. I think he worked out. There's a lot of boxes that this guy would tick for a lot of people. Right. But those are not the people that he, he, whose boxes he wants to tick, you know? Sure. So I think his like fucked up attitudes aside, what Srinivasan points to later as well is that all his desires feed into like a wider narrative of wanting to be desired by those sorority girls right mm. but also to like conveniently frame his own oppression or uh, marginalization whatever you want to call it he talks about how he's overlooked how these females of the human species were incapable of seeing the value in him but Srinivasan points out that that doesn't match up with other wider narratives about certain images of men and the privilege that can come with it. Namely, that there is totally the trope of the geek getting laid, right? Or the hot geek, like he's slightly goofy looking under glasses, but then he like rips off his shirt and he's got six pack abs and, and stuff like that. So he was kind of like overlooking certain elements of pop culture that would still unfairly because it was still a privileging of men's bodies but still play to his advantage as it were um the other trope that amir srinivasan talks about is the dad bot which has you know become a popular phrase in recent years and while that's good for being receptive to different body types within images of male bodies she points out that there's still a double standard in that you probably wouldn't see an article on the mum bod in sort of GQ or Cosmo or something. And, the, you know, there might be the image of, of the MILF as as there is the uh, much overlooked DILF that uh, mm. nobody talks about enough. Um, they the, the image of the MILF is still a completely unfair and unrealistic expectation on how an ageing woman's body would look, right? Yeah, definitely. We can't say that a, the MILF image is the same as what a mumbod would be. Right. They're they're totally different. One is like hypersexualized, yeah, exactly. isn't it? But the dad bod is kind of just Yeah. Just your average just a bod. dad. Yeah. 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 Just someone that's kinda of happy with having a wee belly and and like belly button hair and shoulder hair, you know? Yeah. And that definitely isn't happening for women right now. No. So let's look a bit more about why he does have these like perceptions of self-value and so on in his um manifesto elliot roger goes on to describe quite a privileged and happy early childhood in england his dad was a successful british filmmaker uh, i believe you looked up his imdb alistair i did i did his dad peter roger was the assistant director for hunger games so mm. flying relatively high 
And then he later moved to LA and had what is described as a privileged but unhappy adolescence on the Golden Coast. He was bad at sports, shy, weird, friendless, but desperate to be cool as well. Elliot Roger writes of dyeing his hair blonde, which is significant because he was half white, half Malaysian, I think Malaysian Chinese. And he describes blonde people as so much more beautiful. In terms of his interests, he found sanctuary in Halo, World of Warcraft, typical ACG geeky culture and sort of laments being shoved by a pretty girl at summer camp. He claims that to be his first experience of female cruelty that he endured and it traumatised him to no end. And following on from this, he became incensed by the sex lives of his peers and makes an, an awful racist comment about a black boy getting or being able to get with a white girl, but not him. And he describes himself as beautiful. He's half white himself. He says, I am descended from British aristocracy. So this does play into the sort of delusions of, of grandeur. But again, I think um, it's not completely fueled by his individuality in the sense that it's shaped by like a longer historical trend of the image of white people and white men being aristocracy or you know the heads of global power and so on and that Elliot Roger feels like he's entitled to that privilege but <clears throat> he's kind of deprived of it to some extent because of being mixed race yeah. Um and I think that's interesting because he he buys into this hierarchy even though it's to some extent against his favor. But I think it and and it's something we kind of get onto is that it begs the question of like who is entitled to what? You know, not just sex but like acknowledgement in general. And actually the answer should be everyone based on merit, right? But it's clear that there's all these like structures about race and gender and so on that prevent that from happening for certain people or actually almost everyone. Yeah, he um, he's clearly like buys into this kind of white supremacist attitude to society where he where he's talking where he is basically saying that you know because he's white he should be with this beautiful woman not this black guy who he says is descended from slaves. Um, you know, is he clearly buys into this this narrative of um, white people being better, but he is internally like massively conflicted because he's half white. So yeah, it's just a recipe for disaster, you know. Personally, um, sure. Yeah, I think I think just one final point I'd like to add is that in terms of this idea of retribution just as his kind of like hatred based on race is very misplaced. It is it is quite obvious through his actions and his words, but just to make very clear that also his hatred based on gender is completely misplaced as well. Because as Amir Srinivasan says, he clearly has a hatred for women and feminism, but feminism is is the movement and conversation going on that's trying to tackle the restrictions placed by gender, not just on women, but everyone. Exactly. And because of male and incel attitudes to these demographics and these ideologies and conversations, 
as is the case with any kind of like structure of inequality, you often find that someone who is oppressed rather than fighting up to try and combat the oppression they're facing, they'll punch down to make themselves feel better about themselves. And I think this is totally the case here where it is surely only ever men and predominantly white men who implicitly or explicitly have made him feel bad about himself. But it's almost unquestionably women that he's taken his anger out on. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, feminism is the movement that would, in a sense, come to his aid here, but he's taken out his anger on women. It's completely misplaced. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that is a perfect segue onto the history of feminism around mm. desire over the past few decades, which Rinavasan goes on to talk about. So can you take us through that a bit, Alistair? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what Srinivasan says is that the kind of feminist response or the discussion that happened in the wake of Roger's rampage, the discourse said a lot about male violence towards women, male objectification of women and male entitlement to sex. But it didn't say that much about what shaped his kind of desires in the first place. And sure. so the article, so then that's, the article goes into a kind of brief recent history of desire and the place that you would go to for a conversation on desire was feminist theory. And sure. she kicks it off or Srinivasan kicks, kicks us off with uh, Catherine McKinnon's idea um, from the 70s, which is the idea that sex under patriarchy is inherently violent. And my understanding of that is basically because men in the 70s oh, were in such a greater position of power, the, like the act of sex between a man and a woman was never really fully equal. And so to an extent, it was always a bit abusive. That's my kind of understanding of that. And Srinivasan also writes, so I, I didn't know about this, but she, she writes, for some, the solution lay in the self-disciplining of desire demanded by political lesbianism. I had no idea political lesbianism was a thing to just kind of like remove yourself from, from basically a abusive situation without sounding yeah. too extreme yeah yeah well again again it's a spectrum you you can't comment on every single relationship that women were, were removing themselves from when making that transition to choosing to live a life as a political lesbian because i think that's quite an important distinction to make obviously it is there there are blurred lines overall but um, I, I was doing a bit of reading about this. I've been reading a book by Lynn Segal, an Australian theorist who's spent most of her life in London. I can't remember the full name of the book, but it's called Straight Sex Something. And it was published in 1994 and it's available on Verso now. And she discusses political lesbianism when she's going through a history of feminism up until the early 90s when she was reading. And basically, yeah, the out through a self-disciplining of desire, as Srinivasan says, lots of women in the 70s made a point of living in lesbian communes, or at least having lesbian relationships as a statement against, quote-unquote, sleeping with the oppressor. And I think it's quite easy to sympathise with why someone would do this, right? To avoid any kind of impression, oppression, you can just totally disengage. Yeah. But it, 
it highlighted a lot of problems because as well-intentioned a trend it was, by the early 1980s, many lesbians who had, you know, been living lives as lesbians openly or covertly before this move of political lesbianism emerged, a lot of those, you know, OG lesbians were uh, complaining that their sexuality was just being viewed as a political practice and kind of gutted of its history, its passion and its, its wider significance, something more innate than just this political choice. Mm. So it seems like the whole movement of political lesbianism was rightly encouraging a questioning of preferences, which is what we're talking about today, and relationships in general, and how they're politically shaped. But it maybe wasn't an authentic response, if you see what I mean. Yeah. Which is why, you know, this article wasn't going to inevitably turn you queer in the same way, because it's right for you to make some serious self-reflection, but not then logically just be like, oh, well, I should be intimate with a man now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it probably wouldn't be an authentic response. <laughs> mm. I guess thought it was. I guess thought the whole kind of concept was totally wild. It seems like the kind of concept that is something that is really interesting to talk about. Be like, oh, wouldn't it be good if we could just, mm. just not, just not have sex with men and just, you know, just be women together and strong. Yeah, but the fact that they actually well, what, the people actually did it is just like kind of wicked. It's kind of cool that people actually did that. Yeah, no, it, it is. Is it? It's badass. It is cool because it 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 um it overcomes a lot of pressures and prejudices in society. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, Lynn Segal says something really interesting. She says that as political lesbianism gained momentum the image again this is just stereotypes but like the image of a lesbian changed and it actually conformed more to traditional stereotypical views of femininity being like loving caring maternal and providing warmth because that's what a lot of women were after because they weren't getting it from oppressive men right but at mm -hmm. the same time that took away from the more radical image of lesbians before during and after who queer the image of women and women's sexuality in the first place in the sense that they they often can and do carry traits that are more masculine for want of a better word and often in like a, a relationship with two women they can assume more like dominance or at least responsibility in in an intimate relationship that was lacking between a man and a woman both at that time and and it definitely happens to this day so that kind of went when like women that had had kids in a straight relationship then went to a lesbian commune and brought other ideals of femininity with them even while they were making this well-intentioned political choice hmm there, it's it's fascinating. There's a lot more that we could say about that in there. Yeah. But um, yes. But that was so. That was basically the view in the seventies, and then what? Th yeah, that was the view in the seventies that, that sex under patriarchy is is inherently violent. And then in the eighties and nineties, that kind of evolved to well, the pro-sex feminists hit the scene, and they said, sure. 
look, if you can fi- if you can find genuine pleasure shagging under a patriarchal system, then shag away. Like pursue that. If you can find it, if if it feels yeah. good for you, go ahead. You know. Yeah, Is that fair? That's what Lynn Segar was saying in the book that I'm reading at the moment. Yeah, totally. And then how's that developed into today where I think a wider range of identities are considered? That's right, yeah. So then today you've got the pro-sex feminists combining with intersectionality and, you know, the dominant idea there is that, you know, just do what you want as long as both parties are consenting. And in the article, I'm going to read a little bit from the article here, where Srinivasan writes, the case for pro-sex feminism has been buttressed by feminism's turn towards intersectionality. Thinking about how patriarchal oppression is inflected by race and class, patriarchy doesn't express itself uniformly and cannot be understood independently of other systems of oppression, has made feminists reluctant to prescribe universal policies, including universal sexual policies. Demands for equal access to the workplace will be more resonant for white middle class women who have been forced to stay home than it will be for the black and working class women who have always been expected to labour alongside men. I think that's a really great example of intersectionality and like why it's important and useful, that, that, that one about uh, demands for the workplace, because it recognises that there are totally different experiences and one policy that empowers one group might not empower another oppressed group. And it's not, you can't just take like a one size fits all approach. Sure. Aye, so, so that's how we kind of arrived at this place where personal preference rules, you know, because you can't, mm. you can't, there is no like one size fits all policy that you can tell people what is morally good sex. Um, so we've arrived at this place where as long as both parties involved in a sexual act are consenting, then that is good. That is okay. Go for it. Yeah. So then what is the question that Srinivasan poses and quite bravely doesn't give a complete answer to, but we want to discuss a bit more from now on? What is it? I mean, I think basically it's that while personal preference is great, sometimes or often personal preference can be exclusionary and that is shaped by wider society and not just, it's not an innate thing in you, even though it feels like it is. Yeah, that's exactly right. So then Srinivasan is just kind of getting us to reflect on that at every situation possible, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, and to be self-reflexive because it's, and I think, you know, we're, we're, we're the anti-mask podcast and primarily we want to critique masculinity and masculine traits and attitudes. So I think this is particularly important for men because generally we're coming from a place of more privilege. And I think the more privilege an individual has, I think the more responsibility they have to reflect on their own preferences. Mm. Mm. Because your own preferences unfortunately like you didn't create the society that you're brought into but unfortunately your preferences are what impact on other people yeah so you know if 
if they're not openly exclusionary, they can still be subconsciously quite damaging and violent. Mm. Mm. So, for example, another example of um, common day language that I actually think is quite problematic and exclusionary is being asked if you have a type or what your type is in terms yeah. of a potential partner. Definitely. So I think, for example, if you say, oh, I like blondes, that's most probably read as white. Like, oh, I like white blonde women. And also, without getting all like men's rights activists on people, because that's not what I want to do, equally, a lot of women demand that men be taller, right? And that in itself is not only exclusionary against men, because I don't want to be like, oh, um, oppression against men, but something that impacts people of all genders, and especially if you're keeping to a gender binary, of course, that also just reinforces the idea that a man has to be dominant, mm. which mm. I think is problematic and limiting to everyone involved. Yeah. I mean, we don't, you don't need to say it's oppression against men. It's just like quite shite, really. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, fair enough. You know, yeah. it's like, oh, you got to be over six foot. It's like, ah, oh, for yeah. God's sake. And then, and then, <laughs> yeah, because I, I, you know, it's really interesting. I, so I'm five foot eight, and I quite often go on a rant about why people shouldn't have preferences for height with regards to primarily. I mean, even, even in like the gay community, I like, I, I know of people who have preferences over height, and I'm like, that's absurd though, because it, it, it makes sense historically in, in a, straight relationship because there's always this idea that a man should be seen as dominant but like what preference do you have if you're both in like potentially of the same gender yeah that's like there's no like structural dominance that has to exist all the time there because you you should be on a more similar playing field if you see what i'm getting at yeah yeah but anyway um but and and talking about the queer community also Again, like I've said, the more privilege you have, the more you should critique what what you're into, as it were. But it would be quite reductive just to talk about straight white men because systems of inequality kind of permeate different relationships all over. So as Srinivasan points out in the article, there's like so much discrimination by white gay men on queer dating apps, namely Grindr, that are exclusionary or fetishistic Um particularly against like South Asian and East Asian men and hypersexualization of black men and so on. So the point is that whenever you're thinking about what you're into, who you'd like to be with or what you desire, you should always consider how your identity stands in relation to the person you're looking at or interacting with. It's really interesting. I think this this article totally blew my mind because you just, who you desire is it kind of just, it always feels like it just comes from like your belly. It feels like it's just, it's almost like a, like a light bulb goes on. You're like, yes, I fancy them. But and yeah. you don't eat, there is just like, isn't even like a pause for thought half the time. And especially with dating apps, you can just, you can just fly, you can just fly through them and just be like, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, there's just no it, time to just it's like... it's so mindless. It's so mindless. Exactly. That's exactly what it is. It's absolutely mindless. 
And basically what Srinivasan yeah. wants us to do is put a bit of mind into it when you're thinking about who you desire or yeah. not, not even, that's the point. You're not thinking about who you desire. Have a wee think yeah, about exactly. it is basically it, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, totally. <clears throat> the, one, of the, one of the tricky bits of this or one of the things that makes this kind of a thorny issue is that we don't, you definitely don't want to like prescribe things to people and be like, oh no, you shouldn't fancy that person. You should, yes. because that can lead somewhere very bad, right? Yeah. And that can, I mean, that can lead to like, you know, um, having making like gay relationships illegal, right? Yeah. Basically, I mean, that's just, that's basically where we've come from, like um, 50 years ago, isn't it? So, yeah. So, but, well, so, so let me just like pick you up on that though. Are you saying like, say we're talking about questioning your desires in a more proactive, right on kind of way that even if you were to tell someone, oh, you shouldn't be attracted to a blonde woman or a straight white man, that that even though those people haven't been historically oppressed so much, that's still dangerous. Is that what you're talking about? As opposed to, because I'm just thinking like, if you talk about like making gay relationships illegal, that's something that's happened before, but you're talking about what direction it could go in. I'm thinking that to put any kind of limit on it would be, could potentially be dangerous in yeah. any direction. Yeah. 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 And, and you don't know how it would manifest itself as dangerous, but it just potentially could be. Mm. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Definitely. So kind of on that note, let's talk a bit about dating apps and the very fucked up possibility that people can put limits on who they see and who is advertised to them as a potential partner. So do you want to do some naming and shaming of a dating app, Alistair? Well, I don't use Hinge, but okay. there is preferences there, preference settings you can you can actually say what ethnicities you prefer yep. and what religions you prefer yep i think that is i think that is fucked up man and i don't know why just i don't really know why that's allowed i mean yeah i mean it has been called out but i'm surprised they haven't got rid of it still yeah it clearly and i think what's disturbing is that clearly they think there's an incentive to keep it because clearly a lot of people are using those preferences. Mm. I have what no is... doubt that they are effective, if I'm honest. I have no sure. doubt that that people are happy to not question their desires, right? I mean, they're just happy to like be like, oh, I've got a type. I'm going to go with that type. End, end of. Yeah. So this is... There is actually a case for why you would keep those preferences, which we hadn't actually like discussed before recording this, um, which is that it does, or it could in theory help people who are more marginalized feel safer and comfortable on those apps. Mm. So for example, it's far more, f far more forgivable for a woman of color to just be like, I don't want to swipe white men because I know they're going to say something problematic and it's tiring and triggering and I can't be asked. So it seems kind of fair for them to 
exclude white men from who they see and equally a muslim might just be one of might just be like i only want to date a muslim it's just easier we face a lot of oppression i need someone who gets me but i think from our perspective we should always have it open to all as white men and also i would even argue that you shouldn't even be able to select gender because you can still swipe off them but to still just have someone of the same gender as you or gender non-conforming framed as a potential partner it it might be you know kind of like nudge theory like just putting something in front of someone to see if it gets into their psyche yeah i think that's i think that is quite an extreme point of view steph I th- yeah I, you got to think about the user experience here man i'm all about the user experience <laughs> but the thing is okay yeah i see what you're saying but equally something that I was going to get onto is that even when you, as do I, not have any preferences about ethnicity or gender on my Hinge account, when I start to send likes to people of a certain type, the algorithm just perpetuates that type. So it creates sort of like an echo chamber of desire, if you see what I mean. Yes. So I could swipe on someone of a certain ethnicity and then I would get shown what I'm assuming is a disproportionately large amount of people of a similar ethnicity, given what I think like the ethnic makeup of London is. Mm. So then it does start to exclude other people. And it also kind of like low key would, could be like fueling a fetish for some people as well. Yeah. 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 Hinge have a, a person whose job title is director of relationship science which I think is so sinister. Um, but the way their algorithm works is that it matches it matches people with who you are... It shows you people who you are most likely to like, but also those people are likely to like you back as well. Sure. So it might... Which so, is even more self-perpetuating, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. So you, you're... you're concept of an ideal person might not actually be shown to you because they might not want to you might just not be on their radar at all or their preference at all Mm. um that's i think that's a bit more forgivable you know like if we're going to shit on hinge and we want to cut them some slack because you wouldn't you wouldn't send two people you know on a blind date when you know that only one of them really fancies the other and and (laughs) you know there's just like no game on the other side yeah yeah that is a good point that is someone's only going to get hurt that is a good point um what i mean what it does is it just makes it easy to to not go out of your comfort zone basically that's what it does yeah, totally. And what Srinivasan wants us to do is to actually think about going out of your comfort zone. Just think about it. Yeah, don't, you don't have to do it. No, exactly. Um, but but it had a big impact on me because I did. And I realized that I. it wasn't life-changing, but like I'm open to being intimate with men to some extent. And I thought that was very powerful and, and quite liberating and also helped in terms of me thinking about my own masculinity and, and what that's tied into and, and how you can break away from certain images. Because 
for all like means and purposes, I am very blokish, and some people who I would not want to condone might describe as straight acting, but I'd say there are there are times where I'm camp and girlish, especially as you know you and I have done comedy together and we do a lot of acting of other people and I've I've done drag comedy and stuff like that in the past, but. If I just meet someone in the pub, I could equally be drinking a bitter and I've played a game of rugby that day and people will make certain assumptions about me and it really helps to break away from those things. Like, obviously, that doesn't mean you have to get into bed with a man, but um, just in terms of challenging ideas that come with the initial image of someone you meet, it is quite helpful. Yeah. Um, just before we kind of tie up the whole thing, let's talk about the bedroom more particularly. You know, you've, we've been on Hinge, we've critiqued our desires there, you've matched with someone, you've been on a few dates, it gets to the bedroom, and you find out you're both into a bit of kink. Mm. And here's where a lot of people say, oh yeah, that's literally just an innate desire. None of this is shaped by society and what I've been brought up to think. I literally like that because I like that. Mm. Is that always possible in Kane Callister? No, I don't think it is. I mean, I don't think it is. I think sometimes it can be, but I think there's always something going on in your mind that there's always something like deeply internalized, I think, that, that kink like explores, I think. Sure. Uh, you know, and... Like, yeah, again, where we're at now, we're at the sex positive point in history, in society, where, you know, if two people are into something, great, go for it. You know, like... They're, they're into something, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, if, for example, I want to, like, dress up as a rat and, you know, um, my lover's dressed up, like, as some kind of pest control person in, like, a really tight boiler suit, maybe, and, like... We like, I get her to like chase me around. Taser. Yeah, I get her to like chase me around the sewers of Glasgow. And then, you know, she catches yeah. me and she's like choking me to death. And then, you know, realize that like, like I'm really hard. And then we like fucking the nappies in the sewers. Like if we're both into that, great, go for it. Right. But yeah, there are some things that maybe should be questioned a little bit. Like, um, like, I had no idea that race play was a thing. Like... Yeah, I only heard about this recently. I think that is batshit. If you don't know what race play is, it's when one of the parties, like, reenacts some kind of scene... Racial oppression. Yeah, exactly. Some kind of racial yeah. oppressive scene. Like, you get a lot of... Well, it's of... not one of the parties, it's both. Well, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Exactly. Takes two to tango. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's at least two, you know. Um, yeah. And yeah, so a, a popular one is like someone will be a German officer and someone will be a Jewish prisoner of war or something or like a, a, a concentration camp inmate or another one will yeah. be like um, someone will be like a white slave owner and the other person will be a black slave. Right? That's stuff that people like yeah. enact in the bedroom and I find mm. it totally mm. batshit and while Stefan you pointed us to an article in the London Review of Books I read an article in the metro.co.uk 
um, about race play. And yeah, there's a, a woman, Sophia, not her real name, says, I have friends who are open to doing rape play and age play, but race play is a hard limit. I mean, look, I've got my thoughts on rape play and age play as well, but oh God, it's it's so tricky. And then the, art, the article also interviews a guy called Master Dominic, who is a professional dominant and sexual education expert. And his point of view on race play is, it can be tough for sure, especially when one of you is not part of an ethnic minority. It's been, <laughs> one, it's been one of the toughest learning curves in my career as a middle-class white man to understand. It's like, I just imagine this guy... Oh God, this guy in his in his in his dungeon being like, Oh God, another couple of white people wanting to do a bloody plantation thing again. Oh Jesus Christ, man. So So the so the point is, like, you know, laughing at this aside, it's something that needs to be quite seriously critiqued. Like, how do people not see how that's reminiscent of like the most violent forms of oppression in history? Yeah. That is the question. That is the question. And I, well, I guess that's. I guess the answer is because it's become so normalised. Mm. I think there, there, maybe there is like some instances where it's all right. If like, <laughs> I don't even know, man. I don't even know. I think. It's, I, I think. I think for race play, there isn't. I think even if both people were of, I mean, I think, you know, taking the contemporary view, they're free to do what they want to do. I wouldn't criticize them, but if there were two people who were not white still reenacting a unequal race relationship in their play, that you would still need to question why you want to represent recreate that power dynamic specifically if you see what i mean yeah why is that something that you want to because there is so go on yeah i mean we're, we're not in a position to comment because we're both white to some extent but you can see just like how you should still just point out that that is so historically shaped if you see what i'm getting at yeah like we don't know how those desires are going to manifest because we are white so there are certain things that just haven't affected what we think and what we're into. But I think anyone needs to just question like the the structures behind what they're thinking and feeling. Mm. Uh, we, sh we should add that uh, Master Dom does no longer do race play. He um, doesn't do race play. I don't know if he's crossed he's... that off his menu. Yeah, it's not. It, it says on his website that it doesn't. He doesn't do race play. Um, I don't know if he ever did it, but. Um... I don't. I don't want to like get done for libel from Master Dominic, but no, no. Um, I did go on his website and he has a special offer on milking. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do you dream of being strapped down, anaesthetized, and milked dry over and over? Special milking Jesus. sessions are available at a discounted rate for two hundred and twenty pounds for two hours. A saving of one hundred pounds. What is it? do you need to be anaesthetized for that? That. I've got big questions about that part. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I feel what... like you'd have to like sign a form like before surgery with that. Mm. Mm. Fucking hell. It's the kind of thing that I would, I would like to try, but um, mm. I don't live in London 
and I don't think it's an essential journey. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, I don't. I don't think. I think you'd be charged quite a heavy fine for that at the moment, and that would certainly undermine the one hundred pounds you could be saving. <laughs> it's simple economics. <laughs> Just do the maths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, um, I think that's pretty much everything for today. Well, look, I guess you're right. Aye. Any any closing comments? I, well, I did just kind of want to say, like, I just wanted to just like push back a little bit and just say, honestly, is this that important? This idea of who does who deserves to be desired? Like, who cares? You know, if my type happens to be aloof hipsters, then who like is this just is this not just another one of those things where it's like, oh, that would be nice in a perfect world if everyone did, you know, interrogate their desires i mean we're like we're in the middle of a pandemic it's kids going hungry democracy's in crisis but oh you know at least i've got this date i'm looking forward to oh i who's that date uh, with i would say you've got a point to be made there but maybe you're conflating two things because hipster is like an aesthetic and a trend right and it shouldn't be exclusive to race or gender or body type or whatever so I think you're free to like that and say that is just my preference. But that's to a large extent based on a lot of things that people choose. And if people choose it, then that's okay. Gotcha. But right. if you're disc- if you're discriminating discriminating against something people don't choose about themselves, then it's a problem. Hmm. Or something to be something to just think about it, man, because See by not, see by just mindlessly swiping, there's so many beautiful interactions and possibilities that you're just missing out on potentially. Mm-hmm. And going back to, all right, you said a bit of an extreme view, just like not having any restrictions on who's viewed on even, even to the extent of gender on apps. Fair enough if you're just using those apps exclusively for romantic dating and you know to a large extent what you're into. But I think like following on from what you've just said, I think there's an argument for using apps for more than just that and just like actually meeting people from a diverse range of backgrounds and and blurring the lines a bit more between friendship and romantic relationships, just at the off, because a lot of people are put off by people just looking for sex in the first place anyway. So why not just start off from a more open standpoint in the first place anyway because you know who you're going to want to try and be intimate with later on but that shouldn't necessarily limit who you're just trying to bump into in the first place Mm. I think that's a decent place to leave it yep lovely stuff Um, just to finish off that article is called Does Anyone Have the Right to Sex by Amir Srinivasan from the London Review of Books from March 2018 and I highly recommend it it's worth a listen thanks for listening to the Anti-Mask Podcast we'll be back soon cheers bye bye what is masculinity